Eile told Noach, Noach ish tzadik, Tamim haya bidorotav, et elokim hitalich Noach. So, these are the, the generations, if you will, of Noach. Noach, I'm sorry for my translation, but Noach, I would translate Sadiq is an innocent man, not in the Beshtian sense of Tzadik. Tamim Hayyabidoratov, he was complete in his generation. Etelokim Talech Noach. Noach followed God, but what's interesting, the aspect of God which is identified now is the Midar Hadin. So he follows Midar Hadin, which, by the way, could be an explanation for something which troubles us, although not today. And that is why Noach's lack of response and lack of protest and lack, lack of difficulty with uh, what was going to take place, because he, he is a man of judgment. And over here it speaks about something which is called Hashchata, which I'm deliberately not translating. But again, in front of God, there is this thing called Hashchata. But to Malaya Aretz, Hamas. And the second thing that's described as is Hamas. So essentially we have two problems which are being delineated, Hashchata and Hamas. And then it says, and it seems, it sounds almost a little bit, I don't want to say repetitive, Vayar Elokim so not only did this happen, although it seems to be focusing here upon the Ashkata, but Yomer Elokim, and here we have the judgment, and over here it goes back to the Hamas, and I'm going to do Hashkata to them. So you, you notice over here the, the words Hashkata and and Hamas coming back again, sometimes in one direction, sometimes inverted. But but this is obviously the issue, and this is needs to be what's understood. We're told subsequently that God is going to bring a flood, and that's Pasukid Zayin, Mabul, Mayim Ala Aretz. But Vakimoti et Briti Itach, that a covenant will be forged with Noach, Uvata Eloteva, Ata Uvanacha, Veish. Which is really quite strong as saying that the covenant is with you and almost and therefore your children and your wife and your wife's children and, and your and your son sorry and your children's wives they will come as well. Mikol Hachai, Mikol Basar Shnaim, Mikol so it speaks about coming two by two, male and female, and the male and female is, is Noach and and uh, his spouse and his children and their spouses. And over here, what we have is, again, maybe that's a little bit of a hint about what Hashkata is, what Hamas is, but it's saying, you no, know, with you, there's going to be, you, you do the right thing and you're, you're going to be saved and your wife and children and their wives will be saved because of you. Rashi tells us, V'teshachet lashon erva Rashi tells us that that the idea of hashchata is destruction. I use the word destruction now for lack of a better word, but he uses it in, on a moral sense in terms of arayot, in terms of sexual outrage, and avodazara, idolatry, which we know occasionally can be connected, including at the Chet Egel. So Rashi tells us that what is Hamas? Hamas is stealing.
The Ibn Ezra says something, and it's actually a couple of things, and one thing that we're going to see is what he says that one could accept, and one thing that he's going to say that one shouldn't accept, which will also be intriguing. We'll skip a little bit. That does it mean in front of God? That means it was public. Public displays of, uh, of uh, well, we're not sure what it is yet, according to him, but maybe this should remind us of Zimri. Some say, No, some people say it was secretive and only God knew. It was Levnei Hashem. So it's only in front of God, and others didn't know. And it seems to me the Torah speaks in the vernacular. And, and he says that seems to him that it's like a servant who will do a sin in such a way that the master shouldn't see it. Now this is going to be what's really intriguing. Now I have to stop here. And those who say that God, that the word, sorry, Elohim in this context is not referring to something holier to God have spoken, have said nothing. Hamas, we'll come back to that, yeah, but he adds to Rashi, not only is it stealing, but it's using brute force and even taking women by force. So according to what Rashi told us, there is this element of sexual outrage. And according to what the Ibn Ezra is telling us, that it's not just sexual outrage, but it's also violence. It's sexual violence. And Rashi told us that the viol- that, that the violent crime was really the gezel, but what we have according to the Ibn Ezra is that there is sexual outrage, but also by force. Okay. But there was something the Ibn Ezra said that we don't want to ignore, and that was this question about this word Elohim and what the usage is over here. What exactly does this mean? When it says, again, that's very clear who we're talking about. That's God. But the Shechaita Aretz Lefneha Elohim is claiming that maybe that that is not a holy use of the name of God. And let's just go down and see who says it. It's the Chizkuni. But the Shechaita Aretz Lefneha Elohim Lefneha Gdolim Shayu Ba'aretz Shahayud Lochimet Tanashim Bechazaka. But Timalei Aretz Hamas Ezo Hamas Ezo Gezel So Amorav now, the rest of the Chizkuni, you knew, you've heard this before, the Shavapruta, the less, you've heard the Rishalmi. But what he said beforehand is actually fascinating. And this is what the Ibn Ezra told you, don't believe, and he could have told us, don't believe the Chizkuni. So let's read those first two verses again. Right? Or the first and the third. Ela told it Noach. So Noach is this innocent man perfect in his generation, and he walks with God. Again, the aspect of judgment. And it became corrupt in front of the judges, and therefore, the Chizkuni is claiming, is talking about, not only are the judges acting not as judges, not only are they not upkeeping law, they're actually contributing to the outrage which is taking place. We'll come back to this in a second. Vayar Elohim, 
And then according to Chizkuni, now we go back. So therefore you have in four verses the word Elohim used three times, and the first time is God, or the second time is judges, and the third time is God again. But why does God have to come and get involved? Because the judges were not getting involved. Which is interesting, because we know one of the seven mitzvot b'nei noach is to keep a judicial system, and what happens when there's a lack of a judicial system? Then you end up having anarchy. But over here it's not just speaking about anarchy, because it's worse than that. It's speaking about Again, in the Chizkuni's mind, and, 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 and I am telling you, I want you to consider this because we're going to go back to some of the verses and see exactly where he was getting this from. It's not just that there's this lack of judgment. It's far worse than that. It's the people who are in power, the people who have power, the people who on a moral sense should be making sure that there, that there is judgment. They're the ones who are the most corrupt. They're the ones who are using their power in illicit ways, and instead of making sure that the weak are protected, I mean, after all, what is it? Uh, what makes a society decent? And that is when the weaker elements of society are protected. And what he's describing over here, the Chizkuni, is that the Midat Hadin needs to come and be involved because there's no Midat Hadin down below. There's no Midat Hadin because there's no real judgment taking place. On the other hand, why is Noach being saved? Because Noach has this shall we say, connection to Din, but on the other hand, he may have the sense of justice, but apparently he's lacking one thing. And what's that? And that is that he's lacking power. So therefore, what the Chizkuni just now, again, with one little interpretation, which I don't have to tell you the Ibn Ezra does not accept, nor does he like, he just now said something which I, I think is completely fascinating. And now we're going to go back and see, well, you know, where in the world is he getting this from? And how exactly does this work so what we need to do is just to go back and look at the end of last week's parsha for yihiki hachel ha'adam and and the word hachel is interesting and the simple reading and i'll add to it the proper reading is hatchala hachel to begin when people began to multiply and daughters were born to them now that that itself sounds difficult. I mean, read at face value, I would almost say preposterous. Would it mean that, that people began to become multiplied and then there were daughters and before then there were no daughters? Of course, if there are no daughters, then I have a little bit of a question for some of you that, you know, maybe you can explain to me. And I guess I don't have to ask you the question. You understand it yourself. So what in the world does it mean that man became multiplied and then there were daughters? I mean, you realize something is missing. Elohim. Over here, I certainly hope that you would agree with me that the word Elohim in this context is means the sons of the powerful or the sons of the judges, literally. Now, that's why the Chizkuni was interesting, because all the Chizkuni did is that he takes the beginning of the corruption as described in the beginning of Perak Vav, and he reads it into God's response to what's taking place in the beginning of Parsha Noach. So again, we paused a little bit too soon. But Yerubene Elohim, it benota Adam, ki so the sons, now how do you want to translate Elohim? And with you all silenced, I guess that is, is a rhetorical question. So do you want to translate this as judges? You can shake your head. Do you want to translate this as uh, powerful? You can shake your head. But sometimes the judges are the powerful, or even better, sometimes the powerful or the judges. And you know what? When it comes down to it, I really don't care that much how you translate it. Because again, I would strongly prefer that to the sons of God. And we are a little bit intrigued there as well. 
I mean, what is this? What, who are the Benot Adam? Ki tovot heina. So what does tovot mean? Tovot doesn't mean they were nice, they were good. Again, face value, nice girls. Or does it, of course, tell you that what they looked like, they were very fine. They were very uh, attractive. And they took wives, anyone that they chose. Now, is there a problem over there? And apparently there is because of Pasuk Gimel. And is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? You know, I just as easily could have said that means a man marries a woman, and that's marriage. And we know that from the Gemara. That's where it learns that. means they got married. That every, I mean, really, what's so bad about this? I, I actually could have read this verse into a description that we have of Tuba'av or Yom Kippur, and the girls are dancing, the girls, and, and they're beautiful, and the men see the girls, and they go, and they go all get married, and everyone lives happily ever after. Which means, what exactly is the problem over here that the men marry the women and, and, and so on? That didn't sound so bad. Of course, there is this other issue. It's, it's this possible lack of equality. And, and whenever power, and, and, and let me pause a second. I mean, this has apparently been a problem from the very dawn of creation, or at least going back to pre Parshat Noach. And it isn't until the U2 movement comes and protests against the use of power in a way where it's inappropriate. Essentially, when you have a relationship which is not equal in terms of the power of the relationship, then there is something wrong. And it's clearly not what God describes in the very opening chapters of Bereshit in terms of the Ezer Kenegdo idea, or Basar Mibsari, and so on and so forth, which gives us much more of a sense of equality. But over here, something happens, and therefore, this disproportionality of, I mean, just in description, we don't know anything else which happened yet, of the Bnei Elohim on the one hand, Benot Adam on the other hand, because Bnei Elohim sounds quite powerful, and Benot Adam sounds somewhat more limited in terms of power. And therefore, the description over here, even though, as I said, I could have read this almost in a rom- beautiful romantic Way dan- as I said, dancing in the vineyards. I could have read it that way. So the only reason I'm not reading it that way is, again, the first hint is the disproportionality in terms of the power. But the second issue is the following pasuk. And again, let's not miss the key word here. Vayomer Hashem lo yadun ruchi. Notice the word yadun. What does the word yadun do for us? The word yadun gives us an indication of some kind of Midat Hadin, some kind of judgment taking place. Lo yadun adam. Now that's a fascinating term to be used right after the B'nai Elohim, or maybe guilty of not just malpractice, but or lack of practice, but are guilty of criminality, which means, again, you can have a justice system where the justice is not effective, and then you can have a justice system where the justice is corrupt. Over here, it's the Bnei Elohim, where the judges or powerful are not controlling their own children, and they're the ones who are going after these beautiful kitavodena, children of men, which again, all sounded very good, except for a couple of problems. One problem is when we go back to the beginning of Noah, which is again right afterwards, so let's not leave that. Here is a man who believes in justice. He believes in Midah Hadin. 
That's the fascinating Chizkuni, rejected by the Ibn Ezra. What exactly does Lefnei Elohim mean over here? Does it mean the justices are not acting as justices, or does that mean that they're that they're ignoring the the Midat Hadin of God, as it were? But Arts Hamas, as I'll say it again, the Chizkuni really is quite interesting, especially the response where Elohim sees what's taking place, Vayomer Elohim, and so on and so forth. Now, going back to the description that we had before this, we. If we didn't know what to do with the Bnei Elohim and Benot Adam, then we certainly don't know what to do with Pasuk Dalid. Hanefilim Hayuba Aretz Bimahim. What exactly are the Nefilim and who are the Nefilim? Because if we already have a political or a class distinction between Adam and Elohim, the powerful and the weak, then who are the Nefilim? How did they get involved in all this? And on top of all this, it says, Hanefilim Yuba Aretz Bimahim, Vagam Acharechen, Asher Yavu Bnei Elohim, Benot Adam, Vyodulahem. Heima Hagibur Mashem Yolam Ansheshem. So now could be we're completely confused. And the next Pasuk then is even more interesting than we realized before. Vayar Hashem ba'aretz. So it's very interesting that now it's Midat Havaya, that this is the Yudke Vavke, this is Rachamim. This is not what you would have anticipated, which maybe helps us understand why there's not a complete rewind or complete restart, a complete wiping out of mankind, but rather it's going to be done in a way where mankind will continue. And notice that that's Adam, Adam. Again, Midat Rachamim. And finally, So what you have over here is the whole starting point is a rejection or a lack of justice in the world, a lack of uh, of decency, and, and and the opposite is true. There's something over here between the lines of uh, of power being used. You have victims over here, though we're not exactly sure who is the victim, and. What's going to happen as we move on is something which probably deserves a lot more attention than I'm going to give it. I'm just going to point out some of the things, which means essentially what the commentaries are going to have in front of them is a challenge now to make sense of what happened. And essentially when you make sense, then you need to identify two different groups. One is going to be the victims and the other is going to be the perpetrators. Now, who are the perpetrators and who are the victims is not going to be universal in terms of the commentaries. And what, and for that matter, we'd notice a, a, a class struggle. So the class struggle, the way that I identified it, is in terms of the powerful and the weak. So are, are there any other ways of, uh, of tweaking that? Are there any other ways of describing this? Because maybe I'm guilty of being very modern in the way that I'm describing it. Maybe there are, are other strands or other elements. And to a certain extent, reading all the commentaries may tell us more about the Parsha than we understood, or it may tell us more about the commentaries than we understood. That whenever there is going to be a particular you know, turn of phrase or explanation, what does that tell me about the culture and the time they lived in? And, and specifically, I find, uh, as hopefully we'll get there, is Rav Hirsch to be completely fascinating, especially coming to, from Germany at the point that he came from. And now I've gotten way ahead of myself. So let's try to get there slowly and... Uh, Methodically. Okay. Targum Yonatan, of course, points out that these were beautiful women, right? On which Pasuk, Perak Vav Pasuk Aleph, 
And daughters were born. Well, what does daughters mean? They were beautiful, which didn't really say that, although later on we're going to hear that they were tovot, but he you know, doesn't hold back right away. So again, does that tell us more about the text or more about the, the comment? The Midrash Agadah tells me something which I don't want you to ignore because I think it's far more important and, and, and even maybe even central to everything else that we're going to see. Midrash Agadah in Source 8 ignores the obvious interpretation of Hachel as beginning, and he writes instead, He prefers to that man became whole as opposed to Kodesh. So let me point out, and, and I'm going to read into this all kinds of things. So I'm already telling you this now. I'm going to oversell this point because I think that there's a lot to sell over here. One thing is, at this point in history, how many mitzvot does Adam have? Well, there's one obvious one, and that's Puravu. And I could say in a certain, uh, perhaps, naive way that what was taking place over here was, in fact, a fulfillment of God's mandate pruvu. Look, there were daughters born, the men see the daughters, they take the daughters, and therefore this is all wonderful. On the other hand, by using the word hachel over here and saying it's being done in a chulin type of way, what it's then telling me is that this is not, there was no l'shem kudsha yichud uh, taking place before over here. Or if you want me to put it a little differently, there was no going going to mikvah over here beforehand. There was no tahara. There was no kedusha over here. They didn't read uh, the Ramban. They didn't read the Ravid. They did, they, 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 there is something else taking place, which of, of course you'll understand is far more primordial. I, I do want to point out one person who's going to identify this, and uh, but he doesn't say it as clearly. And again, it's it's me reading into it. But one of the things I'm going to warn you, first of all, it's not who you're going to think it is, but he's going to blame the, the women more than he's going to blame the men in this. And I know that some of you did not see that coming at all, but why not blame the women when you can? They're the ones who cause all the problems. So uh, let, let, let's take a look because you're not going to, you, you wouldn't have anticipated that he was the one who was going to blame the women. So let me show you who I am referring to. He was actually a 20th century rabbi, a very important 20th century rabbi, and one who you've all heard of. And uh, it's actually the last source over here. His name is Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik. Listen to what he says. This is in an important essay called Confrontation. When I refer to, and, and by the way, for those of you who are really interested, um, all the, I, I was so nice to you, because after Source 35, I quoted the dictionary of all the words that he uses that you don't know what they mean. So it was very nice to you. This is the only way that Rabbi Soloveitchik is to be uh, introduced, and that is to uh, to uh, to give all the definitions. When I refer to man at the level of naturalness, I have in mind not the Urmensch of bygone times, but modern man. You want to know what the Urmensch is? Well, you all know what that is. Yeah. Masculine, primeval, or caveman. Okay, there you go. And now you're asking yourself a question. Why in the world didn't he just say caveman? And then we would have known what he was talking about. When I refer to man at the level of naturalness, I have in mind not the 
caveman of bygone times, but modern man. So that's great because what he just now said is that all modern men sometimes behave as if they're cavemen. And all the women right now are shaking their heads and saying, of course, this is true, but let's see where he goes with this, right? I'm speaking not in anthropological, but in topological categories. For non-confronted man is to be found not only in the cave or the jungle, but also the seats of learning and the holes of philosophers and artists. Non-confrontation is not necessarily restricted to a primitive existence, but also applies to human existence at all times, no matter how cultured and sophisticated, the hedonay-oriented egocentric person, the beauty worshiper committed to the goods of sense and craving exclusively for boundless aesthetic experience, the voluptuary inventing needs in order to give himself the opportunity of continual gratification, the cyberate, okay, I have to give you some of these words now, okay, let's go down a little bit, hedonay, you knew what that was, hedonistic, um, voluptuary, persons devoted to luxury and sensual pleasure, the cyberate, a person who's self-indulgent in their fondness and sensual luxury. So uh, I'm going to stop doing this soon. I'm going to let you look up all these words by yourself, but you, you get the idea about what he is saying that the person who is looking constantly discovering new areas where pleasure is pursued and happiness found and lost leads a non-confronted existence at this stage the intellectual's gesture is not the ultimate goal but a means to another end the attainment of unlimited aesthetic experience hence non-confronted man is prevented from finding himself and bounding his existence as distinct and singular. He fails to realize his great capacity for winning freedom from an unalternable natural order and offering this very freedom as the great sacrifice to God who wills man to be free in order they may commit himself unreservedly and forfeit his freedom. Now, I didn't explain enough yet. I'm going to pause here in Rabbi Soloveitchik and give us a little bit more background and then we'll be able to come back to him and to know what he is saying. But, first of all, I assure you that if he was sitting here, he would agree completely with this Midrash as saying that there is chulin over here, there is a lack of holiness. Because the holiness would have meant to take the beauty and the sexual act and to take this whole thing and somehow could create Kedusha with it. It wasn't beauty for the sense of beauty. And again, this verse is a telling verse. Again, we'll see why he wants to blame the women along the way over here. But as I said, I am ahead of myself in that as well. Back in Pasuk Bedford, that they see the beauty and therefore they take them. And again, we don't know yet, is there violence or not violence there? And we're concerned, but give me a little bit of time and I want to come back to this. A number of the other commentaries are, um, they don't know what's going on. And the Malbim is great when he writes, and they had daughters, he goes, this does not make any sense. What are you talking about? This whole thing, he goes, is impenetrable. He goes, one cannot figure out what is going on, unless, of course, one can figure it out. But at least what he's saying is the basic question. There are so many problems over here. What does it mean daughters were born? Daughters were born because they were daughters. I mean, why is he stressing this? What is happening? Rabbeinu Miyuchas is unconvincing. This is an early commentary when he writes, Look at that. When man became numerous, even daughters were born. So I hope you agree with me that there is, that is very difficult to understand at face value. 
The Radak tells us daughters were born in 11. Ain't Sarah Lomer. Ki Yev Shalom, Belizachar, Melinik Evot. Ella Hoya Hasipur Hazeh Alabanot, Lefisha Tau Acharehim. By the way, this is great because you are about to get to blame the victim over here because the poor men got, got I don't know, what word do you want to use for ta'u? They, they got, um, what word? They, 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 they were misled. They were misled because of the woman. Vehin, notice the woman. Vehin garmu so uh, I imagine most rabbis won't be quoting this Radak because it's not very politically uh, popular today. But he's oh look what the women did, and 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 now again you have points that what where, what are you talking about? Good. I mean that's what we understood as well. It's talking about the powerful, the princes, the the judges. Okay, and it's good proof. Elohim lo tchalel is talking about judges. Umitagar minan dayana the judges. For Amar hakatuv ki otob nei hashoftim shirelohim la asot mishpateim hayu osim hachamas. They're the ones who are closest to the judges, who should be making sure the judgment follows out. They should be following their fathers and making sure the judgment. They're the one shayu osim hachamas im benota adam bein baones bein baratzon. Okay, so now. As opposed to Rabbein, to the Radak, who is blaming the women, he's saying these people were taking women in every form, but ones baratzon. If the women agreed or didn't agree, vayichumehem nashim mikol hashabacharu zayah baones. That's by force. Umashas kirsha yavob bnei Elohim el benot adam vidu lehem zayah baratzon. That was they were agreeing, but kiyuba inam lehem derech znut. So it says that they would take, marry the single girls, but there was improper relations with married women, and people didn't understand, didn't know what was going on until the children were born from these other men. And he goes, and these are the sons of the powerful, had relations with the other married women. And so he's talking about a corrupt society that does not have moral standards in terms of sexuality, both in terms of, of illicit sexual relations and in terms of violent sexual relations. And he combines them all together and he tries to show how each one of these are involved over here. Okay, um, we'll pause there. I do want to point out again in Shmuel, we have, the, we have later on in Navi a number of times the Bnei Eli who were told and again, yes, there is the whitewash in Chazal, at least some opinions in Chazal. But over here you have men in position of power who abuse women later on. we have, And then Shmuel takes over. And then we, we find Shmuel's children who end up being inappropriate as judges. It doesn't go further than that. And that's 13 and 14. The Al-Sheikh, who we're not going to read through completely, asks all the right questions. He notices every one of the textual problems that we've pointed out and a couple others as well and the B'nai Elohim and so on. And again, you have this combination of power and rape and uh, illicit relations which are which are taking place. He also notes the God in terms of Midat HaRacham and being used towards the end of source number 15. Let's look at Rav Hirsch. B'nei Elohim hit arvu im mishpachot b'not adam. 
He said, don't skip through the previous two chapters where we had in chapters four and five, the lineage of Shait and the lineage of Cain. There were two separate chapters because there's two separate, I don't want to use the word species now, but I do want to use the word lines. There's the Cain line and the Shait line. Initially, we have and so on. And then we have our problem taking place. By the way, I just as easily could have said the opposite. I just as easily could have, I mean, could have said that the daughters that Benota Adam are coming from Adam and, and, and not from Kain, from Shet. I, I, and, and there would have been equal, if not more, reasons. Benota Adam, him, Mishpachot Bnei Chet. U Bnei HaElohim, Mishpachot Bnei Shet. Mishpachot Bnei Kain, Nimchu Arachim Elohim. They lost their divine values. Ve'ilu Mishpachot Bnei Shet. Nishtamer had Semlon Elohim. Bnei Elohim, they stole the Tselem Elohim, and that's why he's reading it that way. And eventually, even though these are the people with the real Tselem Elohim, what happens... Initially, there wasn't that great of a choice. There were so many families, they could have stayed with their purity. They saw the attractiveness of the daughters of Cain. Apparently, it means that they were fine-looking. They didn't notice the marriage, by the way, the intermarriage that was taking place. They only looked at the beauty. The women looked beautiful. They didn't think of him. And by the way, one wonders to what extent he's saying Pshat in the Chumash and to what wonders he's giving a sermon in terms of warning the people at his time to stay away from intermarriage. So he goes on to describe the distinction that way, and he goes on a little bit more. But it's interesting that he sees the two different uh, genealogical lines being incredibly significant. The Nitziv in 17 talks about, okay, they married too many women. It's okay to have a couple wives, but too many is not really, uh, right, because you have to go and fulfill the commandment of Puruvu. And we'll, we'll skip over this. Although there is one thing important in the Nitziv, and, and, and it's something which I brought the Nitziv because I noted it myself, but it's always good to bring someone who says it. And he sees this as positive. I don't necessarily agree with him on this, by the way. But in order to have an Ezer, one or two is enough. By the way, that is probably also not going to be said by very many Sheva Brachot, right? Ezer Konegda, one or two wives is uh, optimal, right? 
I dare any of you to to, uh, to say this. Don't dare me, because I'll end up saying it. Okay? But he says, if one person marries so many women, what's going to end up happening? You know, generally there's approximately 50-50, and if one married marries a lot, if one person's marrying a lot, then you're going to be missing wives for some of them. Now, this is fascinating. What he's saying is, it's God's will to have so many children, so therefore, it's God's will for each man to have many, many wives. Another mitziv that I'll say will not be said in any shever brachot soon. So what exactly is the problem? And he is almost telling us, you know, he starts, he knows deep inside, it's not really this Azer Konegdo dream, and there is a problem, and he and he referred to Dalad Yatet, which we have to go back to, as, uh, as, as something which is positive, and I would not have read it as something which is positive. So I'm, I'm going to say it again, All everything which is here is, is interesting, but you see that they're tr- really struggling, which then takes us finally back to where we wanted to go, and that is Dalid Yudtet. Dalid Yudtet is the first person who takes more than one wife. I, I do want to mention one more thing about the lack of women around. One of the things we noted last year, if you remember that far back, and you'll be happy to know that last year's year on Noah has been written and is up online, and I'll send it out, as was last year's year on Bereshit and Lech Lecha and Vayera and so on. I wrote all of them. So Noach gets married and has children much later than everybody else. Noach doesn't get married till the age of 500. So one wonders if there's all these women around, so why is Noach waiting so long unless Noach is not really one of the powerful and uh, it wasn't so easy as the Nitziv is hinting at over here. For certain people, <laughs> the, the, the Nebuchs, I hate to say it like that, are, are not finding anybody to get married. It's not so easy for them. Some just said the powerful men are grabbing all the women. So what does that leave the unpowerful? So I'm, I'm just noting that in passing. So back to Lemech. By the way, one of the interesting things is that uh, Noah's father was named Lemech as well. So we'd hear that Lemech takes two wives, Ada and Tzila. And now the Medrash is going to tell us in, in 21 a couple things that are important. That what, what he did over here is actually what, well, maybe let's see, one, that one, is that he had two wives, one of them for beauty and the other one for children. So we've discussed this lots of times. And it's not the Azer Konegdo idea. The Azer Konegdo idea is that instead of looking at a woman in terms of functionality or utility, because you say, oh, this one is for children and this one is for beauty, that a wife is supposed to be a complete partner. And I'll take this occasion to wish my parents a happy anniversary. Number 68. And you're saying, how old How old was my mother when she got married? <laughs> What's the matter, Abby? You want un- you want to unmute? You want to you want to protest <laughs> that uh, that a spouse is supposed to be a, a a partner in a complete way. And once you do what Lemech did, and you're looking at utility, 
then there is a lack of equality because at that point it's just a question of I need I have this need and I have that need I have this need and I have that need and then you end up trying to solve all your needs with various partners which seems the Nitziv didn't seem to have a problem with it actually quite the opposite he said oh look this is what God wanted which I find to be quite disturbing and not just disturbing I find it actually impossible to say I mean just look at the, the midrash that that I wanted to cite before, take a look at the Midrash in uh, in Source 21, where it says over here, You see it in 21. This is what the sinful generation did. They took lots of women. They would use birth control by Tayoshevet, it's la mekushetet kizona, which is fascinating. That where the utility is that she's only there for sex and nothing else, then you have turned her into a prostitute. Again, it, it is, I think, a very powerful description in the Midrash and what the Torah is, and that would be an example of what Rabbi Salvechik was getting at before. But uh, let let me just read a little bit more before we get there. <clears throat> Back to Lemach in Source 18. So he has these two wives. The first is Zada, and she's the one for children, right? Vatela Zada, it's Yoval, which is suspiciously similar to Hevel. And he is the Avi Yoshev Ol Mikne, very similar to Hevel. And then... Just to make confusion, I can't imagine when they went to sleepaway camp knowing whose clothing was whose. V'shem achad Yuval, Yuval and Yuval, and he was avi kol tofes kinar ugav. So we have uh, some two sensitive souls. One is a shepherd, which of course is, you know, filling in the hevel world, and the other is the the one who's the musician. So over here, again, clearly the Kayan line is producing somebody, the wife who is to bring children, which is the mitzvah, right? The Puravu brings children in a sort of a a replacement of of Hevel and bringing music and beauty, as it were, into the world. Vitsila, she is theoretically going to the Midrash, the one who's not supposed to have children. She's supposed to be on his side. Vitsila, Kamilda, it's Tuval Kayan. Now you notice the similarity to Cain over there, if the other one's like Hevel. But what does he do? He ends up making weapons and weapons of war, weapons of killing, which means he is Cain 2.0. Listen, why just kill somebody? We don't know exactly how he killed him. But uh, use weapons much better. And the brother... Now, so we have this wife who was there ostensibly for pleasure, for beauty, for sexuality... But she ends up getting pregnant as well, and she has the first child who is this killer. And by the way, there there is something uh, counterintuitive to all of this. And then there is Naama. So we're, therefore, where does Naama fit into all of this? So there is an opinion. Let's just look over here towards the bottom over here of source twenty-two. And it says, So it's Noah's wife. Now, why does it think, do you think it's Noah's wife? For a very simple reason. Now, what's that? Our theory of conservation of women. 
Over here, she's mentioned by name. She's the only one who's mentioned by name. So there must be some significance to her. So she must be a significant person. So who's a significant person? Apparently Noach's wife. Why? Because Noach's wife survives. So therefore, Mrs. Noach is not Amah based upon our theory of conservation of significant people. Okay? So that's essentially what that line in the Midrash did. We'll look at it again. And it continues and it says, but why is her name Naamah? Because she's a nice girl. Her actions are nice. No, this is a different Naamah. Don't use your theory conservations of of, of women, of Naamot even. She would bang the drum in order to bring people, to seduce people, over towards idolatry. So we have over here a Naama dichotomy, right? One Naama is this beautiful, wonderful deeds. We don't know exactly which deeds, but you beautiful, wonderful deeds, which is interesting because when it comes to Noah, we don't know of any good deeds that Noah did. All that we know about Noah, he didn't do bad deeds. So apparently he needs a Shidduch who does good deeds. And who's the Shidduch who does good deeds? It's Naama. And that's the Naama who somehow is raised from the Kayan world and somehow she does good. On the other hand, no, this is a Kayan world child. And therefore, this Naama is a seductress to idolatry. By the way, there are, as of this point, no sexual overtones to her seductiveness. It's rather, rather she's bringing people to idolatry, but it will get worse as we proceed. The Psikta already points out that this fellow made Kli Hamilchama. He was, he's the person who's, again, he's named, he's almost named after Cain, so of course he's going to be making weapons. So he only quotes the positive side of, uh, of this. There's also in 24 an approach in the Midrash that why does he have this second wife without children that there was already an understanding that there's going to be a flood and why bring children into the world when there's going to be a flood? Look at 26. Midrash Agadah V'achotu v'kai na'ama Chachmenu zal amru na'ama shehenima besof ma'aseha that she was actually very nice and pleasant and good now notice, the the Malachim were attracted to her and they wanted to be with her. But she escaped from them. So it's interesting that somehow we threw the, the Malachim, which of course can help us with the Nephilim later on. But it, it's interesting how it's set up over here as well. Rashi tells us, Naama Ishtol Shanoach. We'll skip over to the Ramban. The Ramban tells us over here in 31, Umidrash Acher, the Rabotain, Lu, Shehi Haisha Hayafa, Himaod, Shemimena Ta'u, Bnei Elohim. So therefore, he said what we heard in that Midrash, that this is what caused the. But, but there's a difference. According to that Midrash, she escaped. It means she's a victim. You know, it's saying, oh, why did the man fail? Because this woman was so attractive. Again, absolutely blame the victim 
On the other hand, the way the Ramban is quoting this is So what he told us essentially is go take a look at Pirkadilezer. So it's not clear over here, meaning, is this the woman's fault because she exists? Do you understand what I'm saying? Is this her fault simply because she exists? Or is this her fault because there was some kind of seduction taking place? So we saw before an opinion that there was seduction, but that was for idolatry. But over here, we have, again, this, this other element that we're not exactly sure yet how we should be nuancing this and how we should be understanding this or what we should be doing with this. But the Ramban told us to go take a look. Now, on the one hand, what the Ramban said is found in the Zohar Chadash in Source 32. That this Na'ama is the mother of demons. Okay, now, now again, in the world of the Zohar, right, Shema Na'ama. So it says, no, this is, again, apparently some other Na'ama. And the mother of Shadim and fallen angels, and now you know why we're going to get lost completely. And Pirik Dibir is the other thing that he referred to. Right away, by the way, it starts off with Cain. Cain was not Adam's son. We've seen this before. The Cain comes from demonic forces himself, so it shouldn't be all that strange. On the other hand, Shade comes from the image of God. Of God and from Adam. Misheta Luvenitsu called a briot for called the rota tzadikim. Umikaina Luvenitsu called the rota rishaim, a poshim or dim, shimardumakom. So the generations, Rabbi Meir will tell us that from the generations of Cain is where all the evil comes out, from the generations of Shait is where all the good is going to come out. But it goes this one step further than, again, I think we're comfortable with. That they acted in this totally instinctual, animalistic way. And every single sexual perversion you can imagine. So again, if you want to justify a flood coming to destroy a generation that was full of of hashchata, there you have a mouthful of hashchata from the every single perversion imaginable mentioned by the Bikir Lezer. Rebbe Omer, that the angels even fell from their place of holiness, menashamayim, et benot kain. They were seduced by the daughters of Cain. Why? Because they were walking around seductively. They were dressed inappropriately. And they were dressing themselves up, putting on makeup like prostitutes. And so therefore, in this way, in this Midrash, it's saying that they, that the women were active participants. Again, they fell from the holiness. I, I, if I'm not mistaken, that... <clears throat> and these are the Bnei Elohim. So therefore, this whole Midrash is fascinating. I'm not going to read more of it, but there, there really is a lot more to read and to discuss from here. But what I will say, that my suspicion is that when we saw Id Perik, sorry, in source number five, Vayehi ki hachel ha'adam, 
from the language of chulin, it even took some, it's not just that they didn't act with holiness, it's taking it even to a further place and saying things that we would have thought are holy in the proximity of God, angels, that even they lost their uh, holiness. Now, to what extent any of this should be taken literally, I strongly, strongly urge caution. I think it's enough to be using this as a metaphor for man. Man has Kedusha. Man is in the image of God. Man is on a mission from God. And man can become corrupted. Man can be given commandments and become corrupted, which means I strongly hesitate the literal reading of this, but which I'll, I'll admit completely, really means to begin with, but they're reading it a little differently because of the context and because of the the results, and they're also reading it in this language of chula. Now, keeping all this in mind, I want to go back to Rabbi Soloveitchik now and to continue reading because we, we stopped right there in the middle. So, beauty, uncouth and unrefined, but irresistible, seducing man and contributing to his downfall, emerges in the biblical arena for the first time, according to the Midrash quoted by Nachmanides, in the person of Naama, the name signifies pleasantness, the sister of Tubal-Kayin. Our sages often, he's quoting the Ramban now, another Midrashic interpretation, that Naama was the fairest of all women, who seduced the sons of the mighty. And it is she who referred to in the verse, and the sons of the mighty saw the daughters of men, that they were fair. Her seductive charms captivated the sons of the mighty and led to their appalling disregard for the central divine norm enjoying man from reaching out for the fascinating and beautiful that does not belong to him. The sons of the mighty yielded to the hedonic urge and were unable to discipline their actions. They were a non-confronted, non-normative group. They worshipped beauty and succumbed to its overwhelming impact. Nama, the incarnation of unhallowed, see, it's that word again, the lack of kedusha. I really believe he was reading this the same way that we did. The worshipped beauty, sorry, the incarnation of unhallowed and unsublimated beauty is for the Midrash not so much an individual as an idea, not only a real person, but a symbol of unredeemed beauty. As such, she appears in the biblical drama in many disguises. At times her name is Delilah, by the way. One of the things that we didn't read further in the Zohar and the Midrash is that she was like a Lilith. Lilith is also a uh, Midrash about a power of the night, power of the Delilah. Delilah is also powers of the night. It has to do with these these powers that man does not have the ability to fight against. At times her name is Delilah seducing Samson, and other times she's called Tamar corrupting a prince. Yes, Tamar in Perik Lamed does dress up as a prostitute in order to lure Yehuda. She's cast in the role of a princess or queen, inflicting untold harm upon a holy nation and kingdom of priests, whose king, the wisest of all men, abandoned his wisdom when he encountered overpowering beauty. The Book of Wisdom, Proverbs, portrays her as the anonymous woman with an impudent face who lieth in wait at every corner, and the Agadah, also cited by Nachmanides, as the beautiful queen of the demons, that's Lilith, tempting man and making him restless. Should we keep on reading? Well, we've read enough over here. Essentially, what Rabbi Soloveitchik is describing is the problem of society. I, I want to move away right now from one of the things that I did, which will cause everyone to be upset. And that is, do we blame men? Do we blame women? And the answer is yes. 
the, the answer is, is that when society ends up coming to a point where, again, there's a lack of holiness, a lack of refinement, a lack of purpose in terms of something bigger than ourselves. Rabbi Soloveitchik would call this where it's unredeemed. But the, the redemption is one, or the sacrifice even, is one where we infuse things with holiness. Essentially, you have a generation. And that's where I think that read, even though I know it's not shot, I think is so powerful. It's that things became corrupt in the sense of a lack of holiness is the beginning of corruption. But maybe we don't think of it that way. We think of, I meaning what's the opposite of holiness? So you can say, you know, no, it's unholiness. It, 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 it's not complete destruction, no, but that's where it comes from. The lack of holiness is the starting point of the problem. That, that's exactly the issue, which means I just as easily could have said, and I did say this, that God blesses man, Adam and Eve, are supposed to be a couple. They're supposed to be an azer connecto. They're supposed to see each other in a complete way, and they're blessed of pruravu. So now, as much as you can say to me, but what's the matter with this generation? They're involved in procreation, they're involved in... No, but they're involved in looking for beauty for the sake of beauty. And on top of that, now you can read any way that you want. You want to read this as the in, as the intermarriage between the Cain and the Shait lines? Fine. You want to read this as the powerful men taking the powerful women where there is rape and there is violence and there is other sexual corruption here? Fine. You want to read this as the woman's fault, as saying that she is exploiting her beauty in order to try to... Again, that's what she, that is what she feels is she's able to leverage in order to create a life which will be a, a, a one where she will now have the power of that powerful man. So that also happens. Let's not, let's not be innocent. The problem, I think, is pointing the finger in only one direction rather than pointing the finger in every direction, which means ultimately it's this entire society which is, falls apart. And the only one who survives is Noah. And Noah is this person who is walks with God, Elohim. So again, just to go back over here, one of the things that we saw that I think was fascinating was that word in terms of there's corruption. And we didn't know what to do with that word Elohim in that particular context. Was it holy? Was it not holy? You know, Liban Ezra versus the Chizkuni was far more interesting, I think, than when we first you know, noticed it. But the lack of holiness is exactly the issue which is taking place over here which means ultimately we create holiness or there's going to be a void. Ultimately we create holiness or there's going to eventually be a tohu vavohu. Ultimately there's holiness or all kinds of, shall we say, forces take over. And I'm going to say it one more time. The read that there's violence by powerful men, I completely accept and I read because this has been true so much part of history that there may have been seductive moves based upon some of the women involved, that also has been a part of history, which means the mistake over here would be to blame one and not the other because they're both part of a larger story. Ultimately, what we have is a society which is corrupt, and the only one who can continue over here is, is Noach, and that's important. He's the only one who's looking for justice. He's the only one looking, but he doesn't have power. He is the one who doesn't have power. And what God does is God says, I'm going to use my power to get rid of all of this inappropriate power and unredeemed lives. 
These lives are lives which are not redeemed. We need to start again to be and, and make a covenant. We need to start again and create holiness. That without holiness, there's this lack of redemption, and this lack of redemption is one which can't exist. What was fascinating about Rabbi Soloveitchik is to say that primitive man exists among us, not just in a cave. It's not just the caveman. The primitive man sometimes is right here in the most sophisticated or so-called most sophisticated places imaginable. And therefore, we would be making a huge mistake to think that only ancient man was guilty of these kinds of mistakes. Modern man can be just as guilty, and there's only one way of avoiding this, and that is being able to bow, as it were, to holiness and to take holiness in our lives and live lives where there are limitations and live lives where we realize that it's only God who can dictate exactly how exactly we live this out. But part of the problem, I'll say it again, I, and that's the difficulty I had there with the Nitziv, I believe that that the description of Lemech and his two wives is not an ideal, and Chazal didn't see it as an ideal. What it is is the beginning of the corruption, because that's when you see things in terms of utility, and you can see things in terms of utility in two ways. It's also the woman who wants to seduce can see the wealthy man, wealthy elderly man, also in terms of its utility, which means that what we saw within Chazal over here was really something which was interesting, and the problem is that those of us who think that a flood came and washed it away and now the world is completely purified and we live now in completely you know utopian times so i don't think i have to tell you that that may not actually be the case do you want me to let any of you speak or no that's enough don't let anybody speak what are you saying okay yes that's it shabbat shalom Go get dinner. Uh, <laughs> yes, Mark. Thank you very much. Rachel, the same kind of word appears with Noah at the end. Is that also related? I think so. I think so. He could he could have taken the wine from Kiddush. And instead of taking the wine from Kiddush, again, Kedusha, instead what happens is that he ends up becoming, uh, he ends up becoming drunk. And listen, you know, wine has always, grapes have always been something which is dangerous. I and mean, we've discussed before the Zohar. You know the Zohar that I would quote about this, so I'm not going to say it. But I will tell you a story, okay? So whoever's still here now can hear can hear the story. Um, I just wrote a book review of a book that Aaron Adler wrote about his very experiences about driving the rev around. So uh, he doesn't only tell stories that he heard. He tells stories that he heard that he heard from someone. Anyway, he has a chapter about, two chapters, one about the Rav and the Lubavitcher Rebbe when they were in Berlin, and then the other one about the Rav and the Lubavitcher Rebbe when he went to the Fabringen, some, shall we say, 50 years later or so. So anyway, he says that one, uh, that the Lubavitcher Rebbe one year on Purim got completely drunk and was wandering around a public park, and this is in Berlin. So he got arrested. And he got thrown into, into into prison. And Rabbi Salavitch occurred that the Rebbe was in prison and went over to uh, to bail him out. So he bailed him out of prison. And he said to him, well, now that you're an ex-convict, you're worthy to become the next Lubavitcher Rebbe. Which I thought was quite funny. Anyway, everybody has a story now that they can use for Parshat Noah on the Shabbos table. <laughs>